The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 208 of The Real Food Real, we share with you an episode from That Triathlon Show, where I was interviewed on LCHF and fat adaptation. This is a different style of interview as it also includes the opinions of Jesse Kropelnicki, who differs from my philosophy, especially when it comes to race day fueling. I hope you enjoy learning about LCHF and fat adaptation, including bioindividuality, common myths, potential drawbacks, and the importance of both for general health, gastrointestinal issues, performance, and longevity. So today's topic on that triathlon show is uh, LCHF, low-carb, high-fat diets, uh, and how that compares to to a more non-LCHF approach. And I have two guests with me. We have Steph Lowe from Australia. And uh, Steph, say hi and uh, tell the listeners uh, where they can find you online. Just a 30-second introduction. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So my online home is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au and I'm based in Melbourne, Victoria, and I work with lots of endurance athletes, but mostly triathletes who really do want to adopt a real food and LCHF approach to their performance, recovery, and longevity. And we have a return of uh, Jesse Kropelnicki, who is uh, calling in from the United States. So we have we have uh, we have managed to fix the time zones uh, just about. So just to say hi and remind the listeners where they can find you. Oh, thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, we're we've got uh, several websites where listeners can potentially reach out uh, to us or or look for more information. But uh, some of the prior, primary locations related to nutrition services would be thecoredietcom um, or qt2systems.com. Okay, so let's start by giving a very brief, because I think most listeners are very familiar already about uh, of uh, LCHF, but uh, Steph, maybe you can uh, give uh, your definition of LCHF. 
Absolutely. So LCHF is an acronym that stands for a lower carbohydrate, higher fat diet. Now, there's lots of different versions of that, which I'm sure we'll break down today. But essentially, the overarching aim is that we're taking nutrition back to basics and focusing on food in its whole food form. So food that comes out of the ground, off a tree or from an animal, if that is your personal preference, of course. Um, my model of LCHF is definitely not keto. I think that, you know, when we look at the literature, we know that what classify or what classifies as a low carb diet is as low as 25 grams of carbohydrates per day and as high as 150 grams of carbohydrates per day. So now we can also do go into, you know, go on. Do you, do you usually break it down in grams or carbs on the higher end or what's uh, is is the 150 or or do you have like a percentage of fat that is like the highest that can be considered an LCHF diet? Yeah, that's a really good question. Percentages, like a really conventional percentage breakdown is 15% carb, 20% protein and 65% fat. Um, that's definitely LCHF and not keto because obviously when we're talking about percentages, it's relative to the overall calorie intake. So 15% of someone that's eating, you know, 1,800 calories is obviously very different in grams per day than 15% of someone that's eating 3,000 calories per day. So we've got to look at grams as well because everyone's got their own individual carbohydrate tolerance or intolerance, right? And we know that the 150 grams a day is going to suit someone with a really good carbohydrate tolerance, usually very active and already at their goal weight. And then the spectrum goes all the way to the other end. We know carbohydrate intolerance is type 2 diabetes. And we also know that to reverse that, the dietary prescription is as low as 25 grams of carbohydrates per day. Now, athletes generally sit somewhere in the middle, especially if they're you know, still looking to get a little bit leaner, which is one of the amazing benefits about LCHF. Um, but in general, we would do, you know, blood tests and look at overall factors like overall activity, not only in a training sense, but in like a work or a day-to-day -day environment to have a look at where that individual sits on that carbohydrate spectrum. And then we can obviously adjust the other ratios accordingly for the proteins and fats. Jesse, we can uh, bring you in now and uh, you can describe uh, just a very brief overview of uh, what sort of uh, nutritional approach that you prescribe for endurance athletes. From a day-to-day -day nutrition perspective or for a race fueling perspective? Yeah, from, from a day-to-day -day mostly, yes. Yeah, I mean, the approach we take um, is very whole food based and it's aimed at honestly trying to keep blood sugar stable during any periods between workouts and keeping manufactured foods and foods with a higher glycemic response that tend to be lower nutrient density, particularly positioned around, you know, workout sessions where they'll provide um, a positive impact to that, to that training session. What, uh, do you have any guidance on uh, macronutrients? Um, not specifically, you know, back in the days when I was uh, doing some bodybuilding and being very quantitative with my nutrition, I was very, very focused on, you know, distribution of macronutrients. Later on, when I started working with, you know, high level endurance athletes and then endurance athletes of all levels, 
I realized that the stress that it takes to do that type of tracking is is not worth it, um, given all the other things in an athlete's you know menu, um, so to speak, of, of things to do that may impact performance. It just doesn't make the list of priorities in ninety nine percent of the cases. So, what we try to do is take a qualitative approach to nutrition with you know certain types of protocols and logic uh, around how we eat during the day. That kind of takes care of those macronutrients on their own. So. Where does that all end up without focusing on the macronutrients? It typically ends where the athlete um, who's not training at all, maybe it's a complete recovery week or a down period, maybe 40% carbohydrate, 30% fat, and, and 30% protein. Um, whereas the athlete that's training 25 or 30 hours a week, maybe as high as 60 or 65% carbohydrate, 15% fat, um, or 15% uh, protein in the remainder fat. So, it, you know, it varies. It depends on the, the training volume, obviously, of the athlete. And uh, the, uh, ideally, the macronutrients adjust themselves using simple logic that the athlete understands and doesn't add additional stress to their to their life or overall program. We'd rather spend that time focusing on sleep, massage, or whatever it may be. And uh, Jesse, what do you see in your practice that endurance athletes that uh, are starting to work with you, where do they fall on the spectrum between uh, on, um, let's say, carbs and, and fats in terms of their, their intake of, of those two, LCHF and uh, high-carb, low-fat Yeah, they, I mean, you know, they, they typically end up being too high on the carbohydrate front um, and too low on the nutrient density front. So that means eating carbohydrates that tend to be void of nutrient density, which means they aren't usually whole food options, um, you know, namely lean meats, fruits, veggies, nuts, seeds, legumes, and lean dairy. So carbohydrates from those sources that I outlined are obviously very nutrient dense. Um, and also tend to keep uh, blood sugar fairly stable. So that's where we see athletes the most void, um, which is a shame because those items obviously provide nutrient density to support training load and immunity. Um, so that's usually where we're working with athletes to, to try to fix those issues. And Steph, what, what do you see in your practice? I'm really sorry, but I actually can't hear Jesse at all. So I don't really even know what you've been talking about. So, so I was asking uh, how you see athletes coming into you uh, before starting working with you, where they fall in the LCHF and uh, the other side of the spectrum, how, how much carbs and fats do they typically consume? Yeah, I mean, so prior to working with me, they're definitely usually following some version of low fat. You know, the majority of people have been exposed to the low fat message. It's been around for a very long time. And there has been, you know, huge campaigns for there to be a lot of fear around fat as a macronutrient. You know, we've been told it will make us fat and it will give us, you know, high cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. And there's, you know, that they're all obviously being disproven. But for a lot of people, we're talking about, you know, decades of this one belief. And there's a lot of fear around fats, especially saturated fats. So, you know, in general, people are eating low fat and then naturally they're going to be relying on more carbohydrates. Um, and, you know, anyone that's followed a very conventional either dietetics model or worked in that really pure sports nutrition sense, yeah, they're following really, really high carbohydrate because that's what we've been brainwashed to believe is the only way. Um, and, you know, in, to talk about, not to forget about protein, most people are overeating protein as well. Like 20% protein is, you know, fairly a fairly big drop for a lot of people. So we are making a number of adjustments to the plate. Um, 
But I think for a lot of people, they're really aware of the benefits of real food. Like we can't question that nature knows best, but it's just about working out what that individualized approach is, which does depend on a number of factors, including genetics, you know, current lifestyle and activity levels and the existing carbohydrate intolerance that is often created by following a conventional food pyramid or sports nutrition guidelines. So, so it sounds like you're both very much on the same page in that real food is the way to go in the day-to-day nutrition. And, uh, uh, of course, I am of the same opinion as well. So, so if we now shift focus a little bit to specifically the, the ratio of uh, carbs and fats and also proteins, of course, uh, and how that affects endurance athletes from various different perspectives. And let's start with actually how it affects endurance performance. So, Uh, Steph, what are the benefits and potential drawbacks of LCHF for endurance athletes and, and how established is the evidence that is out there for that? Yeah, for sure. So I mean, if we start with the benefits of LCHF, what we've really firstly got to look at is what we're shifting away from and obviously what we're then moving towards too. So when we look at an LCHF model and we're obviously lowering our intake of carbohydrates, the real focus is on lowering our intake of refined carbohydrates. So these are the foods that have formed the bulk of our food pyramid and dietary guidelines in the West. And examples are things like bread, cereals and pasta, but we also see even more refined versions like muesli bars and sports bars and low-fat yogurt. Now, it's clear when we look at these foods that they're definitely not in their natural whole food state. They're often created in a lab. And we know that refined carbohydrates, at the end of the day, they become sugar. And sugar has been very clearly proven to be highly inflammatory. So for a lot of athletes, this can be quite a light bulb moment because what we're trying to do is avoid inflammation, right? I mean, obviously there is some inflammation that occurs during a training stimulus, but we don't want to add more to that equation by consuming foods that produce a lot of the reactive oxygen species, which require a lot of work for the body to mop up and try to obviously downregulate that inflammation. If we think about a pure recovery sense, then, you know, clearly the role of the body is to produce that beautiful anti-inflammatory environment, which we can really support by eating whole foods. Now, you know, anti-inflammatory environments are our number one goal for training, but we also know that inflammation is associated with many, if not all, chronic lifestyle diseases that are actually avoidable. So, Inflammation is essentially our enemy for our athletic longevity and our overall longevity. So avoiding these lifestyle diseases like, you know, obesity, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, and the list goes on. So then when we're moving into an LCHF template, we're adding in these beautiful foods that are very anti-inflammatory in nature. So obviously when we increase our intake of our polyunsaturated omega-3s, Their whole role is to create this anti-inflammatory environment, which is really, really important, you know, again, for recovery, ongoing performance, and our athletic longevity. And then the inclusion of foods like saturated fat, which have been demonized for the last five decades, is so important for many reasons. But we often see that, you know, when we finally can expand our intake of healthy dietary fats, What we're, what we're able to do is keep our insulin low. 
So we know that insulin is that fat storage hormone that is produced in the presence of excess carbohydrates. So when we remove those excess carbohydrates, we're allowing our body to have this nice low level of insulin or, or, or none, depending on the meal composition, which is what allows us to promote that fat burning environment. So, you know, I could go on all day about this, but just really simply, we want to be able to access fat for fuel because it is an unlimited tank. So, you know, the term that I like to use is metabolic flexibility. When you can access fat for fuel, you've got that diesel engine, but provided you're eating the right balance of macronutrients, you can still use your muscle glycogen. You've still got the fuel available that we know is required for any glycolytic or high-intensity exercise, and it's therefore what we call a dual fuel system. So you've got access to an abundance of energy and you, you will never run out of fuel. You have literally hundreds and thousands of calories on board. You know, if you're eating a, a higher carbohydrate diet, you'll blunt that fat burning capacity. You will not have access to that, that tank and you'll only have, you know, muscle glycogen and any exogenous or carbohydrates that you consume. It's a very limited energy supply, which is why we see a lot of long course athletes in you know, a bonking or hitting the wall. So, uh, Jesse, can you comment on, on that and, and add your perspective to, to that question on, on LCHF uh, and how it compares to non-LCHF? Yeah, absolutely. You know, typically for the sprint Olympic distance athlete, the fueling isn't going to be the primary limiter on race day. So you can get more radical in, in that approach because, again, I agree. I agree with everything that was stated in terms of um, becoming more fat efficient, focusing on nutrient-dense foods. I mean, these are all things that we need to be doing as human beings um, th throughout the day. Um, where things become a little bit more complex on how radical you get with it is, is really when you step up to the ultra-long-distance racing, um, namely Ironman. Here, the athletes are training between 20 and 35 hours a week and uh, taking an approach with lower than you know even 200 grams of carbohydrate, obviously, depending on the body size, um, would be very difficult. Not impossible, but very difficult. Um, if you were to become fat-adapted to the point that you were able to train on a very, very low quantity of carbohydrate and focus more on fat, um, although you were, you've trained yourself to... to maybe demand less from from a fueling standpoint on race day the problem is that most of the time just from practical experience with pros all the way down to to beginners um the rate at which you detrain the ability of the gut to actually handle even the smaller amount of fuel uh happens at a faster rate um so the what i call the available fueling window or really your insurance policy when you stand at the starting line ends up being lower so um, unfortunately, you know, you end up in most cases with us, we end up training the athletes to handle more carbohydrate, handle more sodium and fluid, um, during training sessions and on race day to have a higher level of insurance. They'll actually be able to, to handle what their body requires, understanding that what they require is now increased because you've kind of trained that into them. But again, in our experience, you know, the amount that you train the gut to handle more actually opens up that window larger so that the level of insurance that they'll actually be able to handle what they're require, which is the primary limiter on race day in Ironman for most people, um, is actually better. The downside of that is now you're, you're obviously consuming more carbohydrates that don't have nutrient density. So that's why it becomes doubly important um, that anytime you're not in a training session, you're not on race day, you need to be extra focused on the nutrient-dense food items to still get a lot of the benefits that were just discussed. So you're trying to get the best of both worlds uh, in that case. 
So, so you're actually saying then that that for the Ironman athlete, it becomes since it's, you're saying that it's difficult to to maybe be on, a, on an LCHF diet because of the amount of training. So, so you're saying then that perhaps the yeah. training. Right, right. You could be on a low carbohydrate, high fat diet for all periods between training sessions, which is in fact exactly what we advocate. And if if you're during a week where there's no training, then you are on a very low carbohydrate, high fat uh, type diet. Uh, it's just when you inject, you know, twenty to thirty hours of training, and the fact that Ironman is mostly limited by the ability of the gut to be able to handle certain amounts of, you know, sodium carbohydrate and fluid, um, that you need to train that as the primary limiter. So the objective isn't at all, uh, or I shouldn't say. At all, but isn't as much focused on creating nutrient density and even even a healthful atmosphere on a daily basis in training. It's more about making sure you address the primary limiter in Ironman, which is practicing handling this stuff. Right. So, so then a sprint distance athlete with uh, shorter sessions, uh, let's uh, let's uh, exclude the ITU athletes that still train the same amount, but but somebody focusing more on sprint distance that has shorter sessions, less total training. Uh, can, can they be really on an LCHF diet then compared to the Ironman athlete because they don't need to consume that much in terms of sports nutrition products in training? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, let's let's separate the two things. Also, there's LC, you know, there's a low there's a low carbohydrate, high fat diet for periods between training sessions. And then there's what you're doing during the training sessions. Then the summation of those two, which gives you the end of the day macronutrient counts, of course. So just to be clear, what we advocate here is that you do take a low carbohydrate, high fat uh, approach to your day to day eating, getting the nutrient density, all of the benefits associated with that. Um, it's just that during the training sessions themselves, we're injecting more carbohydrates. So you know. These are bland, low nutrient density carbohydrates that are fairly high in glycemic load. So, for the sprint distance uh, athlete, you know, when you when it comes to the training sessions, because it's the only differentiator here, um, you could you could get a little bit more risky in terms of reducing the amount of carbohydrate that they have during the training sessions, because again, the fueling on race day um, isn't going to be as much of a limiter. So, you don't need to practice that. You don't need to train the gut as significantly. So, you can take almost a holistic, even across the training sessions, low carbohydrate, higher fat type approach. And you know, you mentioned the ITU athletes. I've worked with a lot of you know professional short course athletes as well that are training the high volumes. Um, and we'll, we'll, even though they are training the high volumes because the race day requirements on, on, you know, gut digestion aren't as significant as they are in Ironman, um, we'll, we'll take many times a more fat adapted approach even during the training session. So it's not just about the training volume. It's more about re- meeting the race day demands and being, re- you know, specific to the needs of race day. If, if the needs of race day say, Hey, it's really likely that you're not going to be able to handle what your body requires. Well, then we got to practice that. And yeah, we may get some byproducts of other things we don't like, but if that's the primary limit, or we have to address it where, you know, in Olympic distance or sprint distance, that's not going to be the primary limiter. So therefore we can go more towards the very, very healthful across the board, low carbohydrate, um, higher fat type approach. Okay. Uh, Steph, how do you approach uh, fueling in training? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good question because we do things a little bit differently in the majority of training versus race day. So I don't disagree with what Jesse's saying around that, you know, you need carbohydrates on on race day. Like, so there's the, the kind of model 
to summarize is train low, race high. Now, obviously, you need to practice what you're doing in, in race day. That goes without saying. But I think the rate limiting factor in Ironman is your inability to access fat for fuel. So Ironman, for most people, you know, we're trying to keep it a low to moderate intensity. So we know that's actually the perfect intensity to be burning fat for fuel. But a lot of people are completely unable to because of reasons, including their day-to-day intake and also this you know, this 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour, all the standard recommendations, which are the one gram of carbohydrate per kilogram body weight. So that would equate to, you know, 65 grams of carbs an hour for a 65 kilogram athlete and so on. Now, the rate limiting factor is being unable to burn fat for fuel because the vast majority of people can't tolerate putting in that 65 or 90 grams of carbs an hour. And no matter how much they practice, there's still going to be the impact of fructose in the the higher intake because we know that you've only got the ability to consume up to about 60 grams of carbohydrates of glucose or maltodextrin. And beyond that, you need to look at multiple carbohydrate transporters, which is why all the products that were marketed gives you that ratio of two to one glucose to fructose. That's the only way you can get higher intakes. But fructose is obviously that sugar that causes a lot of water to be drawn into the gut. That's essentially what creates the more typical gastrointestinal issues and why we see too many athletes, you know, in the bushes or vomiting their fuel plan up along the side of the run course. So, you know, I think that in training, what we're trying to do is fuel very minimal. So it's not zero, it's not keto. It depends on where that athlete's starting from. So if they've been told and have therefore been practicing 90 grams an hour, 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour, we're not going to drop them down at 25 grams an hour. We're going to work backwards and train their body to obviously start to rely less on the exogenous carbohydrates and more on their external fuel supply. If it's an athlete that's starting from scratch, then it is going to depend on body weight naturally, but we might be looking at something like 40 grams of carbohydrates an hour, which is literally, you know, 100% less than what they might have been told in a more conventional model. Um, And when we're consuming that range, that 40 grams of carbs an hour, we know we can do it from purely glucose. So we haven't got the gastrointestinal issues associated with the fructose, as I mentioned. Um, And we can choose more natural options of glucose as well. So we're not consuming these inflammatory fuels. Now, race day is naturally higher intensity. So your fueling requirements are always relative to intensity. So what you need in an LSD session, so a long, slow distance, whether it's a ride or a run, is going to look very different to what you need in any session that is race day replication or race day if there is a higher heart rate. This is why we would pull out a couple of key training sessions that are or that do have those intervals or pacing that acts to replicate what the athlete wants to achieve on race day and test whether they need slightly more carbohydrates based on their heart rate. Obviously, there starts to be really practical and logistical considerations. Like It's really hard to carry 90 grams of carbohydrates every hour for an Ironman that's obviously over 8 to 17 hours. Um, And for a lot of people, they don't want to have to go anywhere near that volume. So, yes, it might be more than training, 
but we still want to be able to be burning fat for fuel and therefore relying a lot less on the exogenous carbohydrates that we have to carry on race day. And one other thing that I want to come back uh, to come back on with that came to mind earlier when when you talked about how everything that uh, you can get from from the ground or from a tree or from an animal uh, is uh, is good food. I, I was wondering, what's your stance on things like just eating eating potatoes? Like like how how rigid are you on on the fact that LCHF is uh, is the way to go versus just uh, just eating real food, as you also talked about, but uh, can that real food come from carbohydrates and, and to what extent? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're eating 150 grams of carbs in a day, even if you're eating slightly less than that, you can definitely fit fruit and you can definitely fit potatoes in that. So white potatoes have definitely been demonized um, due to their high GI, but there's lots of flaws in that pure GI. I mean, for those that don't know, GI stands for glycemic index and it's a measure of how quickly one particular food increases your blood sugar. But I mean, tell me the last time you ate white potato purely on its own. You know, as soon as you add fats to it, like the coconut oil that you're roasting it in or the grass-fed butter that you're mashing it in, as soon as you combine it with a meal containing protein, naturally that GI lowers significantly. So I think that certain whole food carbohydrates definitely have their place. And one of the things that we've really got to be mindful of with LCHF is that we look after our long-term gut health. So that definitely starts with the diversity of food on our plate. It absolutely includes minimizing or avoiding things like refined sugar, um, omega-6 oils and trans fats, but we need to be providing the right fuel for our beneficial gut bugs. So we know how important resistant starch is to feed the beneficial gut bugs in the large intestine. So sweet potato, potato and white rice for those that tolerate grains when it's cooked and cooled becomes resistant starch. Now it can be reheated, but it's that initial process of being cooled that turns it into this beautiful carbohydrate known as resistant starch, which feeds our beneficial gut bugs. Now I'm really passionate about this area. It's one of my problems with a, a typical keto diet that just includes you know, meat and very little vegetables, people starve their gut bugs and that creates a whole host of problems for our day-to-day immunity and neurotransmitter production and nutrient absorption. But into the future, that obviously creates a whole host of systemic issues because we know that all health starts in the gut. So I know that was a long-winded answer, but I think that potatoes absolutely have their place. Um, But in general, they're foods that you need around training to act as a muscle glycogen replenishment. So for most people, that's after a more high-intense session will be the best time to consume anything more starchy in nature. Mm, Okay. Uh, So uh, let's actually let's at this point, because I have a few listener questions that came in on Facebook as well. I posted that. So I want to uh, bring in a few of those before going moving on to the other questions that we have on our list. But one that came in is from uh, Mikko in Finland, and he asks about the effect of LCHF diets on on an athlete's uh, immune defense system. So, uh, Jesse, do you want to take this? Is there something that you can answer? Um, no, I mean, you know, in general, again, I, I keep going back to separating the difference between day-to-day eating and, and fueling because I think, um, you know, the approach we take with the core diet and what's been described here by Steph is – almost identical for all periods between workout sessions. And that's because these are foods that we've evolved to eat. Um, it's the foods that nature has provided us. These are nutrient-dense food items that keep blood sugar stable. These are things that 
that improve immunity. So there's no question about that. Um, where, where things become different is around the fueling. Now, in an ideal world, I, I would recommend that athletes have lean meats, fruits, veggies, nuts, seeds, legumes, and lean dairy um, during their training and racing sessions. But we all know that that would not lead to high-level performance. So um, because of the extraordinary feats that, that these athletes do, especially the extreme endurance athletes, unfortunately, we need to have grains and refined sugars in there um, just specifically so we don't have nutrition as a limiter on overall impact is that additional, let's call it uh, uh, empty carbohydrates have on someone's aggregate life over the course of a year or two years. Um, it's it's difficult to say, right? I think, you know, my position has always been, obviously, we've worked with some of the most successful athletes on the planet, have produced, you know, results that, that are second to none in many cases, um, particularly around the fueling that we do with some of the pros. And, you know, what's my stance on it? My stance is that if you are ultra focused on the nutrient dense stuff, um, that your body requires as a human being during all periods between training sessions, um, you get a little bit of a pass to provide your body what it really requires to perform on race day and training sessions, which many times is a um, you know lower nutrient density, more carbohydrate focused food item. Mm. So, so if I take the question, the last question that I had a bit further, this is uh, actually uh, something that now it becomes a very, a very big personal interest for me now. This discussion because. I have a very high focus on nutrient density, as we discuss, but I also eat a lot of carbs. But most of my carbs are things like sweet potatoes, potatoes, vegetables, and fruits. That's uh, those are the main sources. I very rarely eat uh, pasta, and uh, and very rarely eat rice. Those sorts of things. Then I fuel in in training, uh, depending on the on the training session with with sports nutrition. But but I know that if I would calculate my macros, the percentage would probably come up at. I don't know, maybe 55, 55% carbs or something on, on an on average training day, I, I would say. So, so how important is that um, minimi- minimization of carbs, assuming that the carbs that you eat are not refined carbs and, and not processed food? Like that's, that's what I've, I want to get to the bottom with. And I think a lot of listeners are wondering as well. So who wants to go first here? Well, I can just make a comment firstly on... I think it needs to be very individual, which is why LCHF is always a spectrum and not a defined number of grams per day. But, you know, you may very well have a fairly good carbohydrate tolerance. Now, we would need to look at some blood testing parameters like your blood glucose levels, your HbA1c, your fasting insulin, any inflammatory markers like high triglycerides or a high cholesterol to HDL ratio. There's a few things that we would need to look at to work out whether you're diet that you're consuming now will serve you into the future. So, you know, I agree that, you know, a, a short-term consumption of refined carbohydrates when we're talking about athletes that tolerate them well, that's probably not going to be noticeable straight away. But we're talking about athletic longevity, right? We want athletes that don't have to retire from inflammatory associated injuries that could have been avoidable by changing their diet and looking after their gut health. So we've got to think about... Can I, can I jump at- in just, just real quick here? Because I'm not talking about refined carbs. I'm actually talking about, about real food, like potatoes and, and the vegetables and, and fruits. So so if you stick to them, like is there a potential longevity negative with that, even though it's still like real food and whole food, unprocessed food? Well, glucose still gets converted to sugar at the end of the day, yeah. Sorry, carbohydrates still get converted, converted to sugar at the end of the day. So you've got to think about what impact that's having on your physiology in the long term. 
So I would do those blood tests. I would definitely look at HbA1c, fasting insulin, and all of your blood lipids to have a look if if that is that dietary prescription is serving you well. Now, you know, clearly real food is the answer to longevity, but you may or may not need to shift your macronutrient ratios based on what your physiology looks like now and tracking that into the future. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that, that explains it. So uh, can you explain the HB, HbA1c? What, what is that? Because I'm not uh, aware of that. I've heard it, but I don't know what it is. Sure. So it stands for glycated hemoglobin and it's a three-month trend. So rather than just looking at blood glucose levels, which would pretty much tell you what you ate last night, um, HbA1c looks at the three-month trend. Now it's a measure of what sugar is or is stuck to your red blood cells. So the higher the HbA1c, the more you're moving towards uh, pre-diabetes. So we like to look for an ideal HbA1c of 5.3%. For any athlete that sits over 5.3, we know they're clearly eating too many carbohydrates and we obviously have to start to reduce. So for you, maybe we'll try 50% and 45% and increase your fats accordingly until we get your carbohydrate tolerance back to 5.3 or under. And then, you know, once you've addressed that, you can definitely experiment going up again. Um, but as long as you're tracking your body's response to that, because there is obviously an underlying genetic component, which can be looked at from a family history standpoint to start, but tracking that number, tracking HbA1c, I mean, I believe it to be one of the most important blood tests there are, there is, and that can be a really good strategy to look at annually. Okay, okay. Well, thank you. That, that's uh, very helpful. Uh, so uh, let's uh, go move on to the next topic, and that is, are there potential drawbacks of an LCHF diet in terms of endurance performance? And uh, Jesse, do you want to start? Yeah, I, you know, the biggest risk about employing an approach like that across, you know, the training sessions and racing as well, beyond just between workouts and between racing, um, is again, the the side effect being you detrain the gut to be able to handle um, any amount of, of carbohydrate, fluid, or sodium. And um, that's where things get really dicey, again, especially when you get up to the longer distance racing, although the athlete may be more fat adapted, which on the surface looks like a benefit. They've reduced the amount that they require on race day. What has been reduced at a faster rate in most cases, their ability to handle the stuff. So even though their need has reduced, the amount that they can handle has been reduced even more. So many times they then, you know, toe the starting line in a position where they can't even handle the reduced amount that they've worked hard to create. And of course, that's not a position uh, any athlete wants to be in after training for six months and making sacrifices, time spent away from the family. Um, and, you know, that, that describes a good portion of the fueling plans that we do. Um, with our business, we do, you know, somewhere between two and 300 plans a year. We've been doing it for 15 years. Um, primary we see with athletes that just don't practice their fueling enough, um, trying to take more of a fat adapted approach. And therefore they end up on race day in a position where they can't even handle the smaller amount. So again, that doesn't mean we're against fat adaptation and trying to keep blood sugar stable. Those are all things that we try to do during the large portion of the person's life, which is periods outside of workout sessions. But the workouts themselves, we really focus more on training the gut to be able to handle what the body requires, um, particularly for the longer course racing. If it's shorter course racing, then we can get more um, fat adapted, even with the training sessions, just because it's less likely that the fueling is going to be limited there. Um, you know, what, about, what about the shorter course racing when you are going to be racing at at or above your threshold at least in in significant in some periods of of the races 
does that have an impact on, uh, or does LCHF or versus non-LCHF have an impact on your your ability to pro- perform at high intensity, which is one of the things that is often talked about, but I don't know if we have any conclusion on it as of yet. Again, it depends. To me, it just depends on how radical you get with it. I think there's value in doing some uh, uh, training. I won't say a fasted state, but a lower carbohydrate state um, to get more fat adapted, but still supplying some carbohydrates on race day. They may be less than what you would have, you know, provided if you did a full carbohydrate type approach to the training sessions. But um, you know, you still you still need you still need something even for the higher intensity sessions or or races that are that are going on so you know with the itu athletes we've worked on that's certainly been the approach we we take a little bit lower of a carbohydrate approach to the fueling uh in training and take a little bit more of a fat adapted approach and then on race day um we end up somewhere in between with the total carbohydrate quantities and if you if you look at that in contrast to what we do with some of the pro ironman athletes or even you know our top age group athletes um you know in those cases we've had you know females that weigh 124 pounds uh, what does that work out to Kilo, sorry guys, <laughs> is that that's about sixty kilos mm-hmm. roughly? Um, let me just double check that. Yeah, about sixty kilos. I mean, we've had females that are sixty kilos handling over one hundred and thirty grams of carbohydrate an hour, um, and these are the same athletes that have set some of the fastest run times in history in Kona. Um, so you know, I get to the point on some of these where I just don't care what the, the studies say because I have the real world results. <laughs> of, it's amazing how much humans can handle if you just simply practice it, like everything in life, right? And uh, Steph, do you want to comment on on that question specifically about the high intensity? Because uh, that's obviously something that you get asked a lot, I think. So what's your take on that? Yeah, it's a very common myth. I feel that, you know, it's like, quote, unquote, LCHF makes me lose my top end. And I just think that's a poorly prescribed or the wrong macronutrients in that LCHF spectrum. So when when it comes to high intensity, we know we're using muscle glycogen. And so after that session is when you want to replenish the muscle glycogen. So that's what I was referring to before about consuming complex carbohydrates in the meal that you eat post-training. But it's also obviously going to come down to maintaining your muscle glycogen, which is hard to do on a keto diet. And I don't use that word keto in any of my research or any of my education for that reason because it's rare that an athlete that I would work with needs to be anywhere near 25 grams a day and we want to be supporting performance that's an absolutely important goal so that's why we really want to work out where that athlete sits on the spectrum and making sure they're fueling with adequate whole food carbohydrate to support their intensity and the more intense training you do the more carbohydrates you'll be able to consume so that will change day to day and month to month and, and year to year usually depending on what the goals are. How much do you need to to refuel after a session? Like do you have some guidelines for uh, whatever session that you want to use as an example, but but just to give the listeners an idea of how much carbs they may need after a hard or long session? Sure. I mean, it's not a long session because hopefully our athletes are doing those long sessions at a low intensity, which is where we are burning fat. So we have a much lower impact on muscle glycogen levels. So therefore a much lower requirement for carbohydrates post-training, but anything short and sharp, anything on the track, any interval sessions, anything with periods of high intensity, um, it's a spectrum, but I would get the athlete to look at having you know, 30 to 45 grams of carbohydrates post-training to start. So then we're looking at, you know, 120 or 150 calories from a whole food carbohydrate. 
very individual though. So we need to track things like ongoing satiety, recovery parameters, um, ongoing performance, and we, we can increase that absolutely. But ultimately, we also need nutrients from our non-starchy veggies, quality protein, and healthy fats. And the complex carbohydrate like the sweet potato or the fruit is just that sort of last-to-the-plate type addition to make sure we're adding that to our recovery meal. Uh, you mentioned earlier um, myths surrounding LCHF. There Are there other myths that uh, that are worth pointing out that we should discuss in more detail? Um, I think that I've definitely covered the two main ones. To, so just to recap, the, the first was actually about making sure that we aren't starving our gut. So one of the myths is that people do believe that it can contribute to some sort of dysbiosis, which is that imbalance in our internal ecosystem. But if we're adding the right vegetables and fueling our body with resistant starch and, and looking at diversity and beyond, then we can definitely avoid that. Um, and second is, of course, that it will make you slow, which we can absolutely avoid by fueling with the right balance of macronutrients. Um, they're my main two ones, absolutely. Okay, brilliant. Uh, then I'll throw in another listener question, and this one is from Dean. He would like to hear uh, your point on view, point of view on LCHF for older athletes. Are there any speci- special considerations? And I will also add my own additional question here. Are there special considerations for females versus males? Mm, I generally get my females on a slightly higher macronutrient percentage, so usually <laughs> macronutrients oh, what what specific, specifically yep. more carbs or more fat slightly more carbs so 20 20 60 so 20 percent carbohydrate 20 percent protein and 60 percent fat that just gives them a slightly higher carbohydrate grams especially because naturally they're going to be eating less calories so that's relative from a percentage point of view that generally works well. Um, there are definitely females of mine that thrive on 15%, but this is usually over time. Once we you know, go through that initial 12 weeks of accelerating our body's ability to use fat for fuel, and we kind of pass that initial checkpoint from a fat adaptation point of view, which is about 12 weeks. Um, older athletes, I mean, it, I don't think age has anything to do with it. I think it's very much intensity related. So if that older athlete is still doing a a significant amount of high intensity, then naturally they're going to need more carbohydrate. But if that older athlete does a lot more, you know, MAF training or low intensity training, then they're going to need a lower volume of carbohydrate. So as I said before, your carbohydrate requirements are always relative to your intensity. Jesse, do you have anything to add for special considerations for different demographics? Um, not necessarily for demographics, you know, we're, we're really performance focused when it comes to the fueling piece of it. Um, so instead of looking at, you know, what the requirements are from an intensity spectrum standpoint, um, we look at what the requirements are from a, from a a gut being able to handle it standpoint. And that's usually what we, we targeted at. So if we believe on race day athlete requires 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour, then we train at 90 carbohydrates per hour, regardless of the training session. It doesn't matter if it's a recovery run, recovery ride, a high intensity interval session, 
whatever it is. We understand that the requirements of the session are different, but that's not what we're trying to do with the fueling at that point. The fueling is specifically focused on improving the ability to handle the requirements of race day. And even to the point where the final 10 days will we'll go higher than the requirements of race day. So if we believe it's 90, final 10 days before the race, we'll go to, we'll go to 110, 130. Um, so we overacclimate the gut to be able to handle what the body requires. And then we bring it down on race day. And then there's no fueling issues at all. Um, that, so it's not, it's not demographic specific, you know, to the, to the question here. Um, but just explains kind of the reason why we do not adjust things regardless of intensity or even demographic for that matter. Um, I will say one thing we do adjust slightly is with females, we take a 10 to 15% reduction on the carbohydrate quantity associated with the carbohydrate load. Um, but that's the only nutrition related kind of demographic uh, manipulation that we do. So on that topic, by the way, are you able to name some of the athletes that are going to Kona? Because Kona is obviously fast approaching. And I'm sure after hearing all of this, the listeners that are new to the show and haven't yet heard your previous episode may be astonished by, by this approach. So they will probably be very curious to see how your athletes go there. So if you're able to, can you, can you tell us some names of the athletes that you have going to Kona? Yeah, I'm quickly trying to think of who I've done fueling plans for over the years that uh, are doing Kona this year. Um, certainly the athletes I presently coach. So I have Jocelyn McCulley. I have Lindsey Corbin, who just won uh, Wisconsin over the weekend. Um, I have Jody Robertson, who was second in Ironman Texas this year. Um, she'll be in Kona. Um, Heather Jackson's fueling plan I've done. Um, who else is going to be there? Rachel McBride. I've done her fueling plan. I'm presently working with her. Um, so we, you have you know no shortage of uh, high level athletes in the Ironman scene anyway that really worked fueling and day to day nutrition on, um, and I think it's utilizing an approach that's somewhat hybrid of everything that's been discussed on on the podcast here um, today. So it's not any one approach, but I think it's I think it's a combination of things based on logic and uh, and that's you know it's yeah. the same approach we've taken for 15 years. We really haven't made any adjustments. Yeah, we'll definitely link to to your previous episode as well for those yeah. who want to learn more. Um, one one more question. Uh, re- there is this famous study about race walkers. That is, uh, I don't know if there have been any other direct comparisons between uh, between low carb, high fat, and high carb, low fat diets. But uh, that one was from the Australian Institute of Sports, and uh, it uh, made quite some noise in the media and on social media. Uh, do do you guys want to comment on it, uh, Steph? Uh, what's your take on it? I mean, to be honest, it's just pointing out the, the flaws with any of the the more recent studies around LCHF. You need to have done an adaptation phase. So clearly, if an athlete can't burn fat, then reducing their carbohydrate intake is going to reduce their performance. Like that's logic. So these studies need to ensure they've got their athletes going through that 12-week adaptation phase so they actually can burn fat. Otherwise, they don't have the fuel source to rely on. So we've really got to make sure these studies are well-designed before this fuss is made on social media, which is taking people away from the real point, which both Jesse and I agree on, that is we need to be focusing on real food. But we've just got to factor in that any athlete that wants to burn fat for fuel needs to take the time to train their physiology to do that, which definitely takes time, especially when you're coming off a conventional standard Australian or standard American or whatever it is in terms of that really high carbohydrate food pyramid and the dietary guidelines in the West. Do you remember how long the adaptation period was in that study? 
I don't, I don't, but it was definitely not adequate enough. And that was the main criticism that the conversation that, you know, I've been having with my peers in the space ever since it was, you know, first published and definitely went sort of quote unquote viral on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Jesse, do you have anything to add? No, I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, you know, as I stated already, the studies, the studies are only studies. They're, they're good to, to get you point in a, in a direction or to make you think about something in a different way. Um, but, you know, reality is always the, the best lab that we have. And, uh, you know, t- testing some of the things you read in studies in the real world is where you find out um, the realities of things. And, you know, I've, I've been around the sport long enough and, and doing feeling for athletes to know that uh, the studies come and go. And, um, you know, there were studies that I argued with people on in, in 2002 that, uh, you know, 10 years later, they said, oh, we did another study. You were actually right. <laughs> you know? so, and, and I was just coming from mm. the basis of real world uh, testing and real world results with athletes. So um, you got to always take studies for what they are. And, uh, you know, as stated here, there's always flaws uh, in studies, but they make you think. And that's why it's still valuable to do them, still valuable to, to read them. Mm. Okay. So let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions for Steph. Uh, uh, Jesse has already answered his, so so uh, you're <laughs> done, and uh, you're all also on on a hard out in just a few minutes. But uh, Steph, take uh, just uh, fifteen seconds or less for each of these the three questions that I have. And the first one is: What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports or nutrition? Mm, I'm I'm just a massive fan of Phil Maffetone, so I love all of his um, more recent research that he's been publishing, um, and he has a lot of amazing articles that are great for those that are definitely wanting to learn more. Um, and so it's philmaffetone.com. And what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? <laughs> You're going to get surprised by this one, but at the moment it's actually my yoga mat. I'm actually um, 15 weeks pregnant, so I'm not doing as much um, running or riding at the moment. I'm just sort of lowering things from a um, triathlon balance over doing a little bit more yoga at the moment. Um, so I know it's not triathlon related, but I do believe that yoga has a very important pace uh, place <laughs> to balance out all the endurance work that we would do as triathletes. And who's somebody in uh, endurance sports or in the field of nutrition that uh, you look up to and admire? I have three. I hope that's okay. Yeah. Definitely Dr. Phil Maffetone. I mean, he's a pioneer. He's been in this space for over 40 years. Um, of course, Jeff Volek, who's been releasing or re- sorry, researching low-carb diets for decades, and then Tim Noakes. I mean, I absolutely admire Tim Noakes, especially for his ability to stand up and say that he was wrong and obviously rip out an entire chapter on carbohydrates from the law is running. So the law of running, sorry. So they're my top three. Tim knows he's a past guest on on the podcast, so so we can link to that as well. Episodes forty three and forty four, I believe. Okay, thank you so much to both of you, Jesse and Steph. It's been great to to have this discussion, and uh, uh, I think that this has uh, given the listeners uh, a lot of things to to consider and think about. I'm going to go and look for. Uh, that uh, test provider here in Lisbon, <laughs> Steph, so I can I can go and check how I do on on my higher carb, still very much uh, real food diet. But I'm curious, so I want definitely going to do that. Amazing! I look forward to hearing your results as well. Yeah, I will tell you for Great. sure. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you so much, guys. Bye. Thank you. So there you have it. And uh, as usual, I have a few key takeaways. And the first is 
a really no-brainer, but I still think that a lot of people don't follow it, but that is to eat clean. I think that is the main message. If nothing else, this is what you should take away. And uh, so, as I said at the beginning of the episode, I'm not convinced personally that <laughs> that I should go on an LCHF. I'm not. Uh, I have a higher carb, but I do eat very, very clean. So, so my carbs come from things like sweet potatoes, potatoes, a lot of vegetables and fruits. That's the primary source of uh, all my carbohydrate, actually. Uh, but if you are not eating clean, then perhaps uh, starting to go move towards an LCHF diet is what will help you move towards that cleaner eating as well. So I can see from that perspective that LCHF is uh, preferable compared to a higher carb diet because it might be easier to eat very clean unprocessed food if you consistently try to think about your macronutrients in that, in that way. So so perhaps in my opinion, I think that might be the biggest benefit of it. It helps people eat cleaner if you are doing that already. But uh, whatever you do, that is the main takeaway. Just eat, eat real food, real unprocessed food as much as possible. Second, the importance of nutrient timing. So if you are on an LCHF diet, then when you get your carbs really does matter a lot. And uh, well, first of all, if you are following the Jesse approach, then you will be taking in carbs in workouts to train your gut and uh, train your ability to absorb them. Uh, but even if you are not consuming that much sport nutrition products in uh, training, then the time to get your carbs would be after your workouts to replenish those glycogen stores to allow you to uh, to go into your next workout with them topped off at, to be able to perform also at high intensities. My third takeaway is that going towards a ketogenic diet was not something that uh, either Seth or Jesse recommended for various reasons. And to be honest, I don't think many people would consider that anyway. Uh, but since it is a bit of a trend, I wanted to bring it up here that being pro-LCHF does not mean that you should take it to the extreme. Uh, it is a spectrum, and for some athletes, you might be more low-carb than than others, but uh, consider that, and, and going towards the, that extreme is uh, probably for most not going to be beneficial. And finally, this is a really big and important one as well, uh, the importance of thinking about the real-world lab versus uh, studies, and this is... Uh, why I chose the teaser quote of today's episode, actually. So I talked about the scientific background of, uh, of the macronutrients in some past episodes that I'll link to, episodes 94 and 95. So uh, to be honest, personally, I still don't think that there is scientific evidence to support LCHF from a, a performance standpoint. But I do agree 100% with uh, what uh, Jesse said in that teaser quote and that Steph talked about as well that the best lab is uh, the race course in the real world. And uh, so obviously, if you follow something to a T, like some scientific protocol, but you perform poorly, then you shouldn't keep doing that. You need to change things. And the same goes in reverse. If something works really, really well time and time again, uh, no matter what the science says, then keep doing that by all, by all means. Of course, you should do that. This is something that I talked about in uh, the episode called Practical Applications of uh, Sports Science, episode 109. Uh, science is only one uh, part of the input for your decision-making. Your own experience, how you perform, uh, is uh, the biggest one. Like performance is the best measure of performance, as Andy Coggan once said. 
and your coaches or consultants, if you are using a nutrition consultant, for example, their experience are also big, important inputs uh, that you should take into account. So, so don't get, uh, uh, get held to those scientific studies too tightly. If you perform better, then ignore whatever the research suggests if, uh, if performance is your goal, of course. I, I should mention that you should take health into account as well. So I would never recommend uh, eating a lot of processed food, no matter how well you perform on, on that kind of diet, if you would perform well on that, which uh, might not be uh, that likely. But if it happened, I would still not recommend it just because of the, the health uh, implications that that would have. All right. So as usual, you can find the show notes for this episode on thattriathlonshow.com. If you have comments or questions, please leave them there. And uh, also some related episodes that I mentioned, I have linked to them in the show notes and uh, in the episode description. Uh, episode 40 is uh, with Jessica Polnicki, his past appearance on the show. It's called Race Day Fueling and the Core Diet. Episodes 94 and 95 is uh, me covering the basics of uh, different macronutrients. They're called Triathlon Nutrition, Calories, Carbs, Fats and Proteins, Part 1 and 2. And uh, then we have episode 109, as mentioned, practical application of sports science. We also have an episode on nutrient timing. I didn't link to it, I think, but it's episode 101 or two or three or something like that. I also recommend Jesse's book, uh, the what it, what's it called again? Let me check here. Uh, the Endurance Training Diet and Cookbook. That's a really good one. I have it here in my shelf and it's excellent. Also check out Steph's podcast, The Real Food Real. Uh, if you want to learn more about Steph's approach to nutrition, I will start uh, listening to that and uh, learn more about uh, her approach because I'm very interested in that as well. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.